Okay. Morning, everyone. The reading today is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thank you, Val, for bringing God's word to us this morning. Thank you, Helen, as well, for leading us in our worship. What a great couple of songs we open with this morning. And as Glyn has alluded to, um, the second song we sang... Living Hope is, if you like, a great launch pad for the things we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, because we're going to be looking at this book right at the end of the New Testament, the first epistle of Peter, the first letter of Peter. And as we do so, our overarching theme is going to be that of living hope. Now, I wonder who can tell me What happened in 1666? Right, chocolate goes to David White, Great Fire of London. Who can tell me where it started? Pudding Lane, that's right. I'm sure you know the story, you'll have heard it at school. A bakery in Pudding Lane, the fire in the oven got out of control. The house caught fire, there was lots of houses packed in cheek by jowl, constructed of timber. The fire rapidly spread, a wind blew up, and within a couple of days, huge swathes of London was destroyed. Over 13,000 homes were wiped out. The interesting thing is that when the fire died down, the talk of the town didn't turn to What can we do to rebuild these houses and rehome these homeless people or rebuild the churches or the civic amenities that have been destroyed? The talk turned to who was to blame. And it so happened that there was a group of people in London, uh, they happened to be French Catholics, and a finger of blame happened to fall on them. Rewind the clock, 16 centuries to the first century AD. There was another great fire, again in a great city. This time the great fire was in Rome. Again, like the great fire of London, it started in a tightly packed alleyway just outside the great Roman um, amphitheatre. Again, it quickly spread through wooden houses. A wind took up. And huge parts of Rome were destroyed. The fire died down, the wind came from a different direction, and the fire got going again. And again, once the fire had died down, the talk of Rome turned to who could be blamed. 
And again, I'm sure you know the story from your history lessons at school. The emperor at that time was one Emperor Nero, who wasn't very popular, and stories grew up, and you'll have heard them, about Nero fiddling while Rome burned. We don't know if Nero played the violin or if he was playing the violin while Rome burned. It is almost certain that he was well outside the city while the fire was going on. It is also true that Nero was very unpopular and Nero was, frankly, unhinged. And so the finger of suspicion quickly points towards the emperor. Nero, as unhinged as he may have been, was not stupid And he realised the best way to avert the gaze of suspicion was to find somebody else. Why is all this important to 1 Peter? Well, because the group of people who were ripe for taking the blame was this funny little group of people that had been steadily growing in Rome, a sort of religious sect if you like. They met behind closed doors. No one quite knew what happened when they met. But there were funny stories about them calling each other brother and sister. Were they somehow practising incest? A practice very frowned upon at Roman society at that time. And when they met, they did strange rituals. And there was talk of them eating blood, eating bodies and drinking blood. Was there somehow some cannibalistic uh, uh, ritual going on? And they didn't go to the temples and offer sacrifices like other normal people did. And they worshipped or followed this person who was this carpenter from Nazareth, And and the Romans had executed him. He was done and dusted. But, you know, there were strange stories about him reappearing. In short, the blame fell on the burgeoning Christian church in Rome. Peter, the aged apostle who had pastored the the, the church in Rome, detected a sea change in people's attitudes to the church. The church had always been ridiculed and it had come under some sort of attack from time to time. That now became an official, state-led and organised systemic persecution. Out from Rome went a tidal wave of persecution against the Christian church. And with that tidal wave of persecution, there went a little letter from Pastor Peter in Rome. And that letter had one simple message. Trouble is coming. Be prepared. Get ready for what is about to be landing on your doorstep. And that is the letter that we're going to be reading over the next few weeks. It is a letter that is full of practical advice. It is also a letter that is full of spiritual hope. But, you know, both the advice and the hope it contains, we will find are contrary to anything that the world can offer. 2,000 years later, to us in 21st century Dorchester, Peter's letter is as contemporary and as relevant as it was the day it was penned. You know, our theme for the year is, I think we've got some work to do here, Glyn. Anyone tell me what our theme for the year is? No, that was our theme for last year, Chris. So last season, Chris. I'll tell you now, just so you know, our theme for the year, which is, we have a theme every year, which kind of guides our teaching throughout the year and our thoughts, trusting God, loving life. Trusting God, loving life. How can we love life? How can we make sense of life when actually trusting God for us is so often the source of so much trouble in our life? Well, let's see what Peter has to teach us. Let's jump in straight at the beginning. 1 Peter 1 verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the great things about reading a book like Peter 
is that we know so much about the author. We know so much about Peter who wrote it because of what we read in the Gospels. Many of the letters were written by Paul. Paul we know a little bit about because of the first chapters of Acts. But what we know about him doesn't always make him particularly appealing to us, I have to say. Much as I obviously respect his writing and realise that it is spirit-breathed scripture, Peter is someone we can more readily identify with, isn't he? Peter, I like to think, is the apostle who suffered from foot and mouth disease. Do you know what I mean by that? He was very good at opening his mouth and putting his foot in it. He was impulsive. He was outspoken. I always like to think of Peter as having his hand up at the front of the crowd of disciples. Jesus, Jesus, I know the answer. I know the answer. Pick me, pick me, pick me. I know the answer. Sorry, what was the question? Peter was the disciple who had a name change, wasn't he? His identity changed when he met Jesus. Jesus said, you're called Simon. You're not going to be called Simon anymore. I'm going to call you Peter. Simon means listener or hearer, ironically. (laughs) Peter means rock. And just as Peter changed, uh, Peter's name changed, so he changed too. He had to learn... He had to change by making mistakes, don't we all? But, you know, making mistakes didn't disqualify him from being used by God. And rather than give Peter a somewhat qualified, half-hearted sense of approval, Jesus gave Peter the most important job there was, to pastor the early church. Peter was clearly a leader, He is the most mentioned of all the disciples in the Gospels. We read more about Peter than anybody else other than the Lord Jesus. It was often Peter who was the first to answer questions from Jesus. It was Peter who was often the first to suggest things. If you read the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, we see that Peter always led the way. After the events of the first Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down and filled the disciples, it was Peter who preached the first sermon. And we read that after Peter had preached, 3,000 people were added to the church that day. God created Simon to be a leader. But he had to learn before he became Peter and God could use him. You know, when God makes us, he doesn't make mistakes. But we often need a lot of rough edges knocking off, don't we, before we can fulfill the potential that God creates in us. Most of all, we need to learn obedience. You know, it says of Jesus in Hebrews 5, son though he was... He learned obedience through what he suffered. Suffering, I like to think, is the classroom in which God teaches us how to behave as his people. And it's no surprise, I think, here that Peter, when he is writing a letter to a group of Christians who are about to endure unimaginable suffering, writes... So much practical advice. Enough about Peter. Who is it he is writing to? Well, we read he's writing to the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. These are places that were scattered across modern day Turkey. And if you look at the list of places, There seems to be no particular order. There seems to be no particular significance to them. If you compare that list of names with the list of names of people who were present at the first sermon in Acts chapter 2, yeah, there were many of the people who were there from those places. We also knew from the rest of the book of Acts that Paul visited many of the churches in those towns. I think we can discern more about the people Peter was writing to, not from the list of the names of the places they inhabited, but from the way that he describes them. Because Peter tells us three things about the people he's writing to. He says, first of all, they are God's elect. 
They are chosen by God. Secondly, they are strangers in the world. If you like, they are exiles. They were aliens in the land they inhabited. And third of all, they were scattered. This wasn't one group of people who lived together in one community and they were all, they had safety in numbers. These were people who were dispersed throughout their communities. That word dispersed sounds a bit like the opening of James, doesn't it? You know, James opens his letter saying it is to the 12 tribes of Israel dispersed through the world. But this isn't a letter to a Jewish diaspora. This is a letter to a mixed bunch of people. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, there's Greeks, and so on and so forth. What is Peter getting at here? Well, I think Peter is making a clear point here. He is referring back to a time in Jewish Old Testament history, perhaps to one of the greatest events we read about in the Old Testament, and an event that would have cast a long shadow over the uh, over Israel. That is a time that God rescued His people out of slavery in Egypt, and He brought them into the desert, and into the desert. And out of the desert, they were going to go into the promised land. Peter's Jewish readers may well have read the opening line of the letter and known that he was referring to their own physical and national heritage when he used words like scattered throughout and strangers in the world. There's a lot in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy about being aliens and being strangers in a land. Peter's Gentile readers, I think, would have understood he was now including them in not just a history lesson of the Jews, but into a spiritual inheritance. And I think just as, uh, just as Israel was rescued from slavery and led into the desert, so the early church that Peter was writing to would have recognized their own situation in that. Yes, they had been rescued from slavery into sin. And yes, there was the hope of a promised land that was not yet to come. But they were currently in the desert place, in the wilderness. Just like Israel in the wilderness, they had been rescued from slavery but awaiting the promised land. And in that time, God kept them and he sustained them. And Peter reminds his readers, it is in that wilderness place that God teaches his people just what it means to be his people. But you know, life in the wilderness, yes, saved out of slavery, not quite yet in the promised land, makes for a tough life, doesn't it? If you read through the stories you find in the book of Exodus, not much of it makes for happy reading. I don't know how many Christian testimonies you hear that go along the lines of, well, I had all sorts of problems and troubles in my life, and then I became a Christian, and my life was marvellous. I don't hear too many, certainly not too many that I believe. Most Christian testimonies go along the lines of, well, I became a Christian, and then all my problems started. (laughs) Why is that? Because... As children of God, we have a foot in both camps, don't we? We are, like Peter says, strangers in this world. We are exiles. We are aliens. One commentary I looked at used the word sojourners. It's a great word, isn't it? Sojourners. But you know what it means? It means to travel. We are literally just traveling through this world. We don't belong to this world and we don't belong to the next world, which is our true home. Peter's main message to this group of people who were exiles, aliens, sojourners, if you like, was that whilst all that's true, we are not without hope. In the midst of suffering and persecution, God is still in control and there is still hope. Not a forlorn, against all odds kind of hope, but a real and a living hope. 
What is our hope then? Well, Peter says that we have living hope because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. When we uh, start looking at the main body of Peter's letter, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter launches straight into the main theme of his letter, which is hope. Hope is a funny word, isn't it? When we use it in an English context, it can mean it can mean so many different things on so many different levels, can't it? You know, we can talk about the hope of something very unlikely happening. You know, somebody won the lottery, I think, on um, Saturday, I heard, and it was over a hundred million pounds. Well, you might hope you win the lottery. It's not very likely to happen. Certainly not likely to happen for me because I never buy a ticket. (laughs) It can refer to something which we don't know if it's going to happen, but it is the root desire of our heart. You know, I hope my family situation works out. I, I, I hope my health situation is resolved. It, It can be referred to something that perhaps we think is going to happen, but we can't be completely certain of you know well I've, I've done loads and loads of swatting up and I I hope I pass that exam I, I I've done all the extra courses at work and I put in the extra overtime I I hope I get that promotion but I can't be sure you know hope is so often wrapped up in our feelings isn't it in our emotions Brené Brown, that um, Glynn referred to, I think on the first Sunday of, of, of January, says hope is not an emotion. It is a way of thinking or a cognitive process. Emotions play a supporting role, but hope is really a thought process. In other words, hope is something logical, it is something discernible, it is something rational that makes sense. Hope is also something we all need, isn't it? When hope is taken away, we feel useless. We feel that life has no purpose. Peter, I think, as he starts to write about the hope that the church he is writing to can have thinks back over his own life. You know, when we read in the Gospels, we find that Peter's hope in Jesus was something that changed over his lifetime. When we first read of Peter meeting Jesus, Peter is a fisherman. He's had a disastrous night out on the water fishing. They've caught absolutely nothing. And Jesus, I'm sure you know the story, says, well, cast your nets over the other side. And he catches this amazing um, net full of fish. So big we read that the boat started to sink. From a professional point of view, this was the best night of Peter's life. Peter recognises there is something in this man, Jesus, who is calling him. And he recognises it to such an extent that having had the best night of his life fishing, he is now prepared to leave his fishing boat behind and to follow Jesus. It was Peter who recognised in Jesus and declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It was Peter who later declared, you are certainly God's son. And yet for all that, I am not sure that Peter really understood who Jesus was or what he had come to do. You remember when Jesus before they get to Jerusalem, tells the disciples what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be put to death. And three days later, I'll come back to life. And it's Peter who says, Jesus, you mustn't say that. That was a bad thing to say. And the gospels say he rebuked 
Jesus. It was Peter who you remember at the transfiguration suggested, oh, I'll, I'll build a shelter, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And in parenthesis, the gospel writer says he didn't really know what he was saying. <laughs> but, you know, he really didn't. Because the whole point of the transfiguration was to prove that Jesus was not to be equated with the ministry of Moses and Elijah. He was different from Moses and Elijah. I think the most telling sign of where Peter's hope was based on was just before the events of the first Easter. And I'm sure you know the story. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, I will strengthen you. And of course, Peter, being told that he's going to be tested, says, Lord, Lord, I, I, I'll follow you to prison. I will follow you to the death. Jesus says, no, you won't. Before the cock crows, you will have abandoned me, not once, not twice, but three times. Jesus knew that Satan would test Peter. And that Peter would fail, Jesus also knew that Peter would come back. But Peter's hope for passing that test was based on his own ability to follow Jesus. Peter's hope in Jesus changed. There came a turning point. There came a light bulb moment. And that light bulb moment for Peter was the resurrection of Jesus. It was once Peter saw the resurrected Jesus that Peter's hope in Jesus was restored. And this time, Peter didn't hope in a Jesus who was going to be a revolutionary leader, who was going to restore the national pride, the national identity, who was going to get rid of the Roman occupiers. This time, Peter's hope was in the Son of God who had come to die and to be raised again from the dead and to rescue Peter from himself. And he did that first by conquering death and coming back to life. We have an interesting insight in the Gospels into the hope that many of Jesus' followers had in him. You know, the story of what we call the road to Emmaus. Jesus has died. He's been put to death. And two of Jesus' disciples, we don't know who they are, they're walking back home from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And all of a sudden, Jesus is walking with them. But they don't realize it's Jesus. He's just a stranger. And he starts to ask them, what, what's been going on in Jerusalem? What's been happening? They say, don't you know? And they start to tell him about the events of the crucifixion of Jesus. And they say, well, why, why did you follow this man? He says, why did you follow this man? And they say to him, we had hoped. We had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. But with the death of Jesus, their hope died. Something wonderful happens at the end of the story because... They reach their home, they invite Jesus in to share with them in a meal. And as he's breaking bread, they suddenly realize who it is. Jesus' identity is revealed to them. And when he's gone, they say, did not our hearts burn within us? Their hopes in Jesus were dashed because they didn't understand that their hope in Jesus would only ever be based on the resurrected Jesus. Therefore, Peter says, we have been given a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he goes on and he says more than that, because our new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of their dead is into an inheritance that can never spoil, uh, perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept for you who by faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
Our hope in Jesus, our hope in the resurrection is not a hope for a season. It is not a hope for this difficult time we're going through, through this next week or month or year. It's not even a hope we have for a lifetime. It is a hope that is eternal. Remember how quickly the hopes of Jesus' followers were dashed when he was crucified. Their hope was based on a very human view of Jesus. Now Peter thinks back and remembers the sea change in his own view on who Jesus was. Peter starts off in verse chapter 3 by praising God, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If God is the Father of Jesus, whose resurrection is the cause of our living hope, it stands for reason that our hope is not just living while we are living, it is living for as long as God is living, for eternity. And that hope, Peter says, is for our ultimate salvation. And this is secure in Jesus, Peter says, because of God's power to bring Jesus back from the life. The Bible says we are joint heirs with Christ. Do you know what that means? It means that what God gave to Jesus in the resurrection, he also gives to us when we believe in him. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians chapter 1. You were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Whatever God has given you, whatever God has promised you, whatever hope you have in him cannot be taken away. It will not be taken away. You know, to Peter's readers who were going to be facing unimaginable suffering and persecution, this is something they would have leaned on. Nero could do his worst. The Roman army, the Roman, the great machinery of Roman state could do its worst. But the hope they clung to was steadfast and Sure. You know, we may, as Christians, face all sorts of problems. Let let me rephrase that. As Christians, we will face all sorts of problems. We will face all sorts of opposition, persecution, suffering, things that are thrown at us as we seek to engage with the communities around us, to do as Jesus commanded us to do in the Gospels, to be salt and light in our communities. When that happens, we can know our living hope in the salvation we have, won by the death and the resurrection of Jesus, is secure. It is guarded. You know, Peter uses this phrase, who through faith are shielded by God's power. That word shielded in the original tongue that Peter was writing in meant to be guarded like a soldier would guard a prisoner or guard his master or guard some treasure. Our salvation, that which we lean on, that which we trust in is guarded in heaven by God himself. Peter then goes on to talk about the joy that we have because of this hope. In this, you greatly rejoice. Brilliant. We have a living hope. We can rejoice in it. But, you know, that's only half the sentence because what Peter actually talks about is the joy of the living hope we have in the midst of suffering. In all this, you greatly rejoice Though now, for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, 
may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. Peter now turns from the opening theme of his letter, hope, to the idea that I think runs like a scarlet thread throughout the rest of his letter. Suffering, or rather, hope in the midst of suffering. Remember, this is a letter that is written to a church that is about to experience a tidal wave of persecution. And it's no surprise that Peter writes that they should expect grief in all kinds of trials. The suffering that the church was about to go through was not of a nature that could be nicely, neatly pigeonholed and described and wrapped up and defined. It was going to be various kinds of different trials. I've been involved in church leadership for over 10 years now, and it never ceases to amaze me the variety of trials that people face in their lives. We may face one enemy, but he constantly seeks to attack us in so many different ways. And you know, none of us know what is around the corner. None of us know what's going to happen on Monday morning. None of us know what's around the corner. We suffer in so many different ways, don't we? And just when we think we've got the hang of what's going on in our lives, bam, something else comes and takes us by surprise. I'm, I'm reminded of the um, words of Sir Humphrey Appleby talking to Jim Hacker. I foresee all sorts of unforeseen circumstances. Peter is very astute when he says our suffering will be of various trials. But what is surprising is the fact that Peter says through all these trials, we can still greatly rejoice. How so, Peter? Well, Peter gives us three reasons why we can rejoice in the midst of suffering. Firstly, he says, because they are short. Though now for a little while, you may have to suffer grief. You know, my mother used to have this saying that she would say to me quite frequently if I was putting, having to put up with something that I didn't want to, or if there was something coming up that I didn't want to have to go through, a, a trip to the dentist or an exam at school or something like that. She would say, David, it will come to pass. It will come to pass. And you know, even now... That little phrase comes to my mind, and she's been dead for years. It gets me through an awful lot of things in life, knowing that whatever I've got around the corner that I know is coming in a week's time or a month's time, it will be over. It will come to pass. Can we still say that when it seems that our persecution and our suffering, because of Jesus, seems to have no end? Yes, says Peter. And he reminds us that we shouldn't concentrate on what we feel. You know, I feel this is never going to end. I feel this is going on forever and ever and ever. You know, I remember a time when I think it was Lois would wake up at five o'clock every morning when she was a tiny baby and she wouldn't settle again. And I remember sitting at my desk at sort of two o'clock in the afternoon, struggling to stay awake and thinking, this is going on forever. And of course it didn't. Peter reminds his readers, the troubles they're going through will come to an end, even though it feels like they're going through it forever. We need to put aside what we feel and focus on what we know. Our present suffering is just that. It is for the present. Our living hope is for eternity. You know, this is something Peter returns to right at the end of his letter. He says, the God of grace, as he winds up in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. 
how do we get through that? Well, I think Peter, as he was writing this, was probably thinking of the example set to him by the Lord Jesus himself. You know, Jesus, it talks in the Gospels about him heading towards Jerusalem, setting his face like flint as he prepared to go to Jerusalem and face the cross. The book of Hebrews talks about Jesus' attitude at that time. It says, let us run with perseverance, the race marked for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Secondly, Peter tells us that through our suffering, our faith is refined. He says, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honour. Peter likens the suffering we go through as we live the Christian life as being like the refiner's fire. The gold is refined in a fire before it can be used, and the goldsmith turns up the heat on the crucible, the thing which contains the gold, plus all its impurities, and as the fire gets hotter and hotter and hotter, the impurities come to the surface, and they can be scooped off. And Peter says that results in us being proved genuine, You know, I'm sure there are many people who would have said to Peter's readers, as they will say to us today, oh, well, you know, it's just a fad you're going through. This religious God thing, that Bible church thing you go to on a Sunday morning, you'll get over it. You'll find something else. It's just a gap that needs to be filled in your life. I'm sure there's many of Peter's readers who would have been told, oh, it's, you know, that, that, carpenter in Nazareth thing you'll 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 find something else to believe in it won't last Peter tells us that when we suffer we are being tested and this will prove our faith you know James puts it like this in the opening letter of his book consider it pure joy my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of many kinds really Because, James says, you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Peter says rather than seeing suffering as something negative, which is bad, he says we should see it as a good thing. If we are to make it as strangers in this world, as aliens, as sojourners, in this world, our faith will have to last. And for that to happen, it needs to be stress tested and strengthened. You know, the refiner's fire that Peter talks about doesn't destroy the gold, but it does remove the impurities. And likewise, when we undergo affliction and suffering and pain, it doesn't destroy our faith but it does remove the impurities. It burns away that which stops us trusting in God. Our self-reliance, our self-confidence, our ego, and it drives us back into the arms of our loving Heavenly Father. Thirdly, and with this I close, Peter tells us our suffering will bring with it a reward. Because he says, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honour. The things that we suffer in this life because of the name of Jesus and because we want to honour him in our lives, 
are never overlooked by God and they are never forgotten by God. I asked you, didn't I, what our theme for the year was. I'm going to very tentatively ask you what our verse for the year is. Perhaps I'll just tell you. It comes from Psalm 56, and it says, In God I trust, I will not be afraid. And you know, in that psalm, David is talking, or he is reflecting on the people around him, people who probably should have been on his side and supporting him and upholding him, who David says in his own words, hotly pursue him and press their attack all day long. Maybe some of you can identify with that sense in David's life. But you know, in the middle of that psalm, David recalls that God sees his suffering And he remembers it. He says, record my lament. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? You know, the message translation of the Bible puts it like this. Each tear I shed is entered into your ledger. I wonder how many times you have wept in private, how many tears you have shed on your own when you think no one's watching, no one's looking, no one's concerned, how many times in the small hours of the morning you have sobbed into your pillow. God sees each tear that is shed on account of him and he records each and every one. And Peter says that will result in praise and honour and glory. Heady stuff, isn't it? These are the sort of adjectives we would normally reserve for the Lord Jesus and God our Heavenly Father. And yet Peter says this will be our reward in our heavenly home. You know, in 1 Peter 13, the passage that David's going to be looking at next week, he says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. In Romans 2, Paul says, God will repay each person according to what they have done to those who by persistence in doing good and glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. There is a day coming when we will meet the Lord Jesus himself and we will be called to account for everything we have done. And you know, there are those who have heard the gospel and rejected it and spurned the Lord Jesus and turned away from God and said, I don't want anything to do with that nonsense. And for them, it will be a awful, terrifying day. And that's not my opinion. That is what scripture says over and over again. But, you know, those there are those who will have suffered and been persecuted and suffered affliction because of the name of the Lord Jesus and their commitment to honour him and follow him in every step of their lives. And for those, Peter says, it will be a time to experience joy beyond expression. All of that seems like a big ask, doesn't it? To a tiny group of disenfranchised people trying to live out a life for God in the midst of persecution and suffering and quite likely execution. It's hard for us too. You know, our name is Dorchester Community Church. We are not called to be hermits, to be isolated. We are called to go out there and bring a message of hope that the world desperately needs, to bring a message of light in a dark world. It's tough for us as we walk as strangers in this world. But maybe it's not so hard to the one that recognises that they are God's elect, chosen, Strangers in this world, exiles and aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Dorchester, 
Weymouth, Poundbury, the surrounding villages, wherever you live. The challenge is to ask the question, where is our real home? Is it here? Where we live? Where our house is? Where my address is? Where my postcode is? Or is it somewhere else? Where is my real hope? Is it in me? Is it in what I can give to myself? Is it in what the world can offer me? Is it in my chances of success in the world? Or is it somewhere else? Is it a living hope rooted in what I know about Jesus, the Son of God who suffered, who rose again, who conquered sin for the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of many? David Pawson, who can be controversial and a bit provocative, once laid down this as a challenge. Are you prepared to die for Christ, but wanting to live? Or are you wanting to die, but prepared to live for Christ? Do you get that? Are you prepared to die for Christ, but wanting to live? Or are you wanting to die, but prepared to live? Just as we close, I want to read words of a hymn. That was The first line was on my mind as I was preparing for this morning, but I didn't actually know any more than the first half of the first line. And I googled it just as I was finishing. And it goes something like this. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it contains not just wisdom and interesting history and nice stories, but it contains a real and a tangible living hope. A living hope based on a God who chooses his people, looks down on them and loves them and resolves to do something to make them his own. We thank you that no matter what we're going through, no matter what suffering and tribulations we're going through, that we have a hope that is steadfast and certain. We thank you that there will come a time when we will see you face to face. And each tear that we've shed, each taunt that we've suffered, Each barrier that we've had to break through will be rewarded. And you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And to the one who today is facing the storm clouds of suffering. I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would speak into their lives. And that they might be able to trace the rainbow through the rain. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.